lot of natives have a lot of good ideas, a lot of great ideas. It's just natives don't have access to capital to make those ideas pop. And even if they could, you guys know how pretty much every market is set up. I mean, you have people who control it, and then they decide who they want to let in, and that's usually by influencers. Like, if you create something hot, you get the influencers to push your product or your whatever you're doing. A lot of natives don't have access to those influencers or the capital or you know any of that. So it's it's kind of hard to take it from A to C when B is like invisible, basically to all natives. Joe San Diego is the chairman of the Hopland Band of Pomo Indians. His tribe is based in Mendocino County, California. We sat in on a dinner at the Las Vegas branch of Italian-American eatery Carbone, while he and some others discussed the tangled-up world of cannabis and Native Americans in the United States, especially California. Among Joe's guests were the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians chair, Michael Hunter, but who usually goes by Hunter. Both were in town as part of RES, or the Reservation Economic Summit. This was put on by the National Center for American Indian Economic Development. Our liaison through it all was Will, who's part of Sherbinsky, a renowned California cannabis company. They gained cred for award-winning strains of cannabis and products with dessert-inspired names such as Sunset Sherbet, Pink Panties, Gelato, and Mochi. The mastermind is a guy named Mr. Sherbinsky, or Sherb, as those around him say, a member of the famed Cookie Family Collective of Growers, who's created the original Girl Scout Cookie strain, a variety that's widely referenced in today's mainstream rap and hip-hop. Together with Joe, they've struck a deal to grow on land owned by Joe's tribe. Over dinner, they explained how the elaborate and legal operation works to both us and Hunter, who wanted to know more about the emerging industry many tribes are getting into. Before we start though, we want to preface that there's going to be a few F-bombs in this story, so consider your surroundings. As we said earlier, this story takes place on the Indian Reservation of Hopland. Here, Tribal Chairman Joe was looking to develop some land owned by his tribe, the Hopland Band of Pomo Indians. The partner? Cannabis Flower Band Sherbinsky, represented by Will. So what makes this deal so lucrative? Why would a cannabis grower want to go out of their way to start growing on an Indian reservation of all places? The short answer is that doing so offers a bandage that stems from the reservation's historical status. Indian reservations in the United States or Canada were pieces of land allotted to different tribes throughout the colonial history of both countries. In the United States at least, there are 326 recognized Indian reservations. Now, the exact formative history of each of them varies, with some being established after signing treaties to surrender land but some of the reservations were formed as the result of the Indian Removal Act signed by President Andrew Jackson in 1830. This meant forcing natives off of ancestral lands in the southern and eastern United States that were favored by settlers in exchange for designated plots further west. In his annual message to Congress, President Jackson wrote the following about natives. They have neither the intelligence, the industry, the moral habits, nor the desire of improvement, which are essential to any favorable change in their condition. 
established in the midst of another and a superior race, and without appreciating the causes of their inferiority or seeking to control them, they must necessarily yield to the force of circumstances and disappear. It would be a long time before the government would significantly update its views on native rights to self-determination. In 1970, President Nixon outlined policy changes that supported Indian self-determination. But the spirit of Jackson's message hasn't gone quietly either. Today, the U.S. federal government officially recognizes tribal nations as domestic dependent sovereign nations. Not all of these tribes have reservations, a large designated plot of land to call home, but for all intents and purposes, federally recognized tribes and the United States interact on a government-to-government -government principle. This separation means that, yes, tribes have both the right and authority to regulate activities on their lands. This includes enacting or enforcing laws and regulations that are, and this will be important later, stricter or more lenient than those in their surrounding states. This means that aside from their own governments, tribal nations have their own courts and law enforcement on reservation lands, among other things. And because of their status, certain federal, state, and property taxes don't apply on Indian lands, although individuals still pay the same taxes as their fellow U.S. citizens. Now hearing just that part alone makes reservations sound like the ideal place to make bank while the legal side of an emerging industry is still catching up. Some sort of financial or legal haven inside the United States. This should make all tribes and their members extremely wealthy. But hold on, it's not that simple. Historically and even today, Indian reservations in North America have not fared well with economic and living conditions lagging far behind the standards of their respective countries. The U.S. Census found that, in 2014, 28.3% of American Indians and Alaskan Natives were in poverty, the highest of any race group and much higher than the 2050 national rate of 14.7%. In addition to poverty, unemployment, addiction, and suicide are some of the social issues affecting Native peoples, and the case is typically worse on reservations. There are many reasons for these statistics, but for the sake of brevity, we'll talk about the main economic factor, distance. Reservations have been, as per the treaties that created them, established in areas that are remote or unfavorable, and deliberately so. This means they're generally located far from major cities, meaning they lack the traffic needed to sustain certain markets. And with tiny populations, the spending power just isn't there to make leaps and bounds. So just how have many tribes supported themselves? Well, it depends. Some reservations have natural resources that can be tapped, and some have good land for agriculture. Now these would be good because the products or raw materials can flow outwards towards the markets and the buyers. For other tribes, such as hunters, they can benefit from a single gas station on a nearby highway. But if a tribe like Joe's didn't have, say, oil and gas, huge patches of soil for mass farming, or even a nearby highway, how could they get people to leave the cities and spend money on the res?
those other income streams aside, when most non-natives think about the most financially successful native-run operations, they're probably thinking about casinos and resorts. These are certainly a draw for tourists and people who just like to gamble. But for tribes, it can be the equivalent of putting all your eggs in one basket. Having worked extensively in the casino business, like his tribe's own Hoplin Shokawa Casino, Joe understands this all too well. Yeah, I mean, it's like any other business. The market gets so saturated, you kind of have to distinguish yourself to capture the market you want. Joe recalls how for the first five years of relying on gaming, there was only one other casino apart from theirs. Over time, River Rock opened 30 miles south, closer to San Francisco. Then finally, around a few years ago, Grayton Casino opened up further that way, less than an hour closer. This all but soaked up the rest of what could have been business for his tribe's casino. It's kind of like the price is right, you know what I mean? It's like whoever gets closest to the population, they end up getting the bulk, the lion's share of the profit. There's only so many people, you know what I mean? So my approach was to do something younger, different than everything everybody else was doing. I just didn't have the support to do it. Joe's experience working in gaming and his own years on tribal council make for a very broad perspective of business viability on tribal lands. But he doesn't see it being the be-all and end-all for reservation economies. Like many other tribes, his is trying to move away from strictly gaming. And not just because of the aforementioned risk. Joe marks a definite generational shift for natives in terms of business direction. I think gaming overall, like in the United States, is just kind of like heading in a different direction. You know what I mean? It's just, uh, in our market that we have, it's it's like super based for like a, a lot of older people. You know what I mean? And a lot of the stuff I do is kind of aimed towards like a younger crowd. We did a lot of like MMA fights, live MMA, live concerts and stuff, yeah, so. Semi-regular events aside, there's just no ignoring the potential of cannabis especially when the conditions couldn't be any riper, something Joe and many other native leaders are keenly aware of. Historically, California has been one of the most cannabis-tolerant states, having first decriminalized marijuana in 1975. This reduced possession of an ounce of cannabis to just a misdemeanor. In 1996, with the Compassionate Use Act, California became the first state to legalize marijuana for medicinal use when recommended by a doctor. With that said, cannabis legislation in California is continuing to evolve, and the doors have opened towards the legislation and taxation for recreational use. California Proposition 64, or commonly the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, was just approved on November 8, 2016. That made it legal for individuals to use and grow marijuana for personal recreational use, with the business and taxation aspects to follow next year, on January 1st, 2018. But even before this highly anticipated legal green light, the pieces have been coming together for a few years, as Joe recognized the untapped resources sitting right in his backyard. Before I was on council, they weren't really using the land for anything, you know what I mean? And, and um, me and a couple of my cousins were cruising around on the res, just checking different areas out and being like, you know, we could use this for this, use that for that. And so when I met Will and we started talking about, you know, moving into this space, I mean, I already had the area picked out. I knew the perfect area, the perfect location, just because 
The way it's set up, there's one road in, one road out. We even had a study done, like the access to sunlight, the sun, you know, the sun belt, how it moves across the res. And like, if you look at like where we are, I mean, it's, it's direct sunlight all day and all night. You know what I mean? Along that whole strip. With his initial survey complete, Joe recognized the value of the land, specifically for cannabis, and more importantly, a new path for his tribe's economic future. While Hunter's land includes proximity to the freeway for a lucrative gas station, Hoplin needed a different approach. As Sherbinsky continues to develop its brand as a flower company, for cannabis flower that is, it's embarking on a bold movement to be just as much a lifestyle brand. And as an early partner in Sherbinsky, Joe would be building the foundation for a long-term solution. I think for us in Hoplin, our location has never been our strength, but I think in a cannabis space, our location is a strength. And, and the amount of property that we have, I mean, we have something around 2,000 total. And it's hidden, and it's, it's, it's nice. So, like, long-term success, you know, I see us, like I said, with Sherbinsky and them developing that brand, you know, being a part of that, um, collecting our tax revenue, getting away from the gaming. You know, I, I support gaming 100%. I, I love it. And I, I can see us being in gaming, you know, you know, until the end. But just having a different revenue stream that doesn't depend on gaming and doesn't depend on traffic of business coming into town and traffic of people coming into town, something that we can build and grow and ship out anywhere we want. Moving away from the service industry towards production could open the doors economically. But getting away from gaming and shifting towards cannabis wasn't going to be easy. Joe definitely had the entrepreneurial drive and did his due diligence, but there were more than a couple of hurdles in the way. One thing Will had mentioned was Joe's acute awareness of the finer points of tribal law. As tribal council chair, Joe knew the intricacies of it all, but he needed somebody who knew the state laws where the surrounding market was located. This is where Will comes in. While he's not a lawyer, he does know the legal side of cannabis in California. But more importantly, he's personally passionate about cannabis and knows how to articulate and deconstruct its challenges. Legal and you know, quote unquote, you know, consultants made it, made people more skeptical instead of me going hard to heart with people one-on-one -on -one not a full business team, you know? And be like, oh, this is an average guy, this is, you know, they're successful, they, they do other businesses, and I felt like that was much easier than me coming with my lawyers and coming with a certain consultant and liaisons and stuff like that. I think that was, um, I didn't like that approach at all. With all of the potential complications surrounding state law, sorting out that legal side was hard enough. But for a California company hoping to set up shop in Indian country, it had to persuade a whole nother government. The political aspect of tribes, like things can change overnight. For us, we've, we've, we've made contracts and we've drafted ordinances and drafted contracts that make them as bulletproof as possible. But if I don't have council support, like they can make my life incredibly hard and give us to a point where we're at a roadblock where we're not gonna wanna invest any more money on infrastructure or do our project there, you know? So that, that, that is always there, that, that problem is always there. If you have a, a, a tribe that's not doing financially well and you have a membership that has a lot of issues and, and they're, they're going through certain you know, poverty issues, that's gonna be a problem because it's gonna reflect on the council and the council is gonna want to think that they're gonna be able to do things on their, or whatever the case might be and they might want to run us off of a project. But um, those are things we're always, we always have to worry about. But... 
poverty is still a real issue, even as the next generation of natives is looking for ways to move forward. With poverty often comes substance abuse, and for California-based natives, alcohol and meth are the most pervasive. Because of that, it's understandable why tribal leaders would be reluctant to produce a controlled substance, and on the reservation no less. But Joe sees things differently. Native people a lot, I mean, what I've seen a lot in Native people, just growing up around different tribes and my different cousins and stuff, a lot of the times, you know, they, they demonize like any type of drugs, any types of alcohol. I think it works against tribes when they do that. Just me personally, like, you know, part of my family is like 100% okay with people drinking, right? And then the other part of my family is like, oh, it's the worst thing in the world. But you look at like the part that demonizes it, and those guys, you know, are the ones who struggle with alcohol dependency and, you know, those kind of issues. And the ones who don't, they learn to drink responsibly and it's just, it's not an issue. It's kind of like a cultural thing. Like, I mean, if you look at Italy, wine is considered food over there. So you don't have like a lot of alcoholism over there. Whereas like in native communities, I see it as an issue. You know what I mean? It's more of a problem. I think some tribal leaders just don't want cannabis around their community, which is fine. When you're trying to harness the power of something that you believe in, but that can also be inherently destructive. It's already a huge challenge when your own community doesn't support it right away. Fortunately, or unfortunately, Will was able to sway the tribal council in a way that, try as he did, Joe hadn't been able to. This is a messed up thing. This is a of things. I've been talking to my membership for the past two years, right? And I don't want to say that I'm better spoken than Will or... You know what I mean? Well, whatever. I mean, I think, I think Will's very well spoken. But I've been saying the same thing to these guys for the past two years. And I have, like, the, the same intentions as he does. And, you know, now that I'm a tribal member. And I'll, I'll go to my membership meetings and talk, say the same thing to you. They're like, oh, my God, Joe, how dare you? <laughs> you could be bastard. You know, all this stuff. Right? And I'm, and I'm like, I'm here trying to help you guys, man. Like, and then this guy comes in, like, like two weeks ago we have our me membership meeting, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about it anymore because I know what I'm going to get. I know my answer, I know my, my reception ain't going to be, you know, what I want right. to be. Will, why don't you come over there and do it? Will comes up, everybody's like, just loves this guy. Just a few weeks ago. Tribal Andrews, they're coming up to the microphone and telling them, like, <laughs> they're like how yeah, much? If it wasn't for <laughs> our leader. No, they're like, no, they love Will. You're like, like, bro. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? So like, so like as an outsider, like, this guy gets, this guy gets so more smart, love smarter. He's smarter. Yeah. I think it definitely plays to the strike that I am Asian, so I'm also like a minority. Yeah. If I was like, you know, Caucasian, like white, I think it'd be a different. I, don't, I personally think it'd be different. Given the history of racially tinged mistrust between tribes and outsiders, Will might have facilitated the partnership in a way he hadn't expected, just by being, well, Will. To recap, by this point, Joe had the support of his tribe and with Will's help, the legal base to grow medicinal cannabis bound for California dispensaries. And as an added layer of protection, 2013's Cole Memorandum signaled a huge change in the way the federal government dealt with cannabis. It basically meant federal resources were to be less focused on prosecuting individuals that followed state laws for medicinal use. Naturally, the memorandum turned into discussion of how it applied to tribal sovereignty and cannabis legislation. 
The next year, in December 2014, a clarifying memo stated that the federal government's non-interference policies that applied to the 50 states would also apply to 326 recognized American Indian reservations, even if the number of them that were looking to legalize was actually pretty small. Still, that should have meant further legal autonomy for tribes, which meant they could write their own laws surrounding cannabis. When asked, Will explained to Hunter the benefits of growing in Indian country. But I'm talking about equipment that we buy or purchase, like whether it's nutrients, and pots, pans, lights, whatever it is, we, we, we have more tax exempt for that. That's, that's Will points out that in addition to an exemption on taxes for equipment, reservations generally have more fluidity on the zoning and permitting requirements, the bureaucratic bulk of which could bog down the approval process for years elsewhere. You have work in progress and you start generating revenues from that. In most of these places, the council members are already fighting each other, the planning department's fighting each other. You don't know when you're going to get that permit and when you're going to get that license. And you don't know if they're going to change ordinance or certain things. And then, the, and then the state comes in and says, okay, you know, these, we're only going to issue these class of licenses depending on the given real estate that you have. And that's another permitting process. So there's just multiple, multiple steps. It's understandable that the expediency of cannabis legislation and scalability on tribal lands make them more attractive to prospective farmers while recognition of tribal sovereignty should protect the sale of goods on tribal lands, provided, of course, everyone does all the homework. Still, the biggest issue facing Joe and Will has always and will continue to be sales off of reservation land. But for a company as established as Sherbinsky, there was no room for taking risks. And so Will was proactive in informing and assuring the powers that be of the operation's intentions. How, how we've been navigating around that is that the very first day that we even had the property up there and we had the ordinance passed, I invited the Board of Equalization, which is the taxing authority for the state, and let them know like, okay, this is what we're doing. We wanna pay taxes, we wanna, we wanna give the state money as well. You know, we're, we're a California company, we're selling it to California dispensaries, this is the revenue that's going to be created from it. It's just that most tribes, they don't want to have that dialogue, you know, direct with them. And they've also get a bad taste of like, they hear, they, all they do is hear stories. They don't really get to meet the people. So they hear stories of like them blowing out, you know, 20 acres, unregulated, bringing it unregulated into the California market with no type of tracking from it. These guys just want to understand what we're doing. And of course, they're going to, they want to make a little bit of money off of it because it's coming into the California market. Us as a company, we're completely fine doing that. But I think it's very important for tribes to have some sort of dialogue with the state. But even after jumping through the layers and layers of intricate legal hoops to run a legitimate cannabis operation, there were more vindictive players in the game, as Joe and Will found. So Humboldt's Growers Association, we had like a meeting in Frisco, and uh, I think Sherb went to it, right? Mm -hmm. And... Basically, they wanted to introduce a bill that if a tribe has a casino, they can't grow any, they can't be involved in the cannabis industry. Yeah. I know, but what's crazy is like, it's one of the only bills that like, basically... What's crazy like is that almost most, got brought to the assembly. That yeah. almost got brought to the table. It and, like, it's, and it's like one of the most racist bills. Like they literally yeah, how can you like justify a, that? They identify like a race of people. While businesses will always try to find ways to deal with competitors in the same industry, 
The attempt to specifically limit the income diversity of natives is very telling. Despite clear economic gains for not only the tribes hosting a cannabis operation, but also the state where the product is going to be sold, some parties are trying to intervene through lobbying, and some of them have been even more direct. Joe and Will recall their greatest setback yet. And we have a very, very strong case because all our lawyers know, we're in the medical marijuana business, if cops come to a illegal grow that they've been staking out or they get a warrant for, they come onto that property. That property has licenses, lawyers calling you saying this is a legal grow, take a look at our paperwork. They disregard everything, don't listen to anybody, don't call tribal council, don't call tribal police, purely with mulchers, in and out 20 minutes just to cut all the crops. That's a shakedown. Because what's happened before is, and this happened in Santa Cruz at my friend's property. Santa Cruz sheriffs came onto their property and the lawyers went out there and were like, hey, if you cut all these plants down, this is the total amount that you guys are gonna be liable for. I suggest you guys need to do whatever research to see that if this is legal or, or illegal. If you guys think this is illegal, guess what? We're right here, come arrest everybody. But here's all our paperwork. So what the cops do, they take pictures, they take samples. They take one or two plants, you know, and they go back. You don't go and eradicate 850 plants. The most recent developments include a lawsuit officially filed by the Hopland Band of Pomo Indians and Wills Thera Fields Incorporated. It pertains to the raid on September 2, 2016, where a sheriff came onto the property and ordered the destruction of over 800 mature cannabis plants. We reached out to Mendocino County Sheriff's Office and the specific sheriff in question, but were unable to get a reply. In recent years, law enforcement has been cracking down on farms in California. Now these crackdowns have been for violating water diversion regulations, especially during the state's drought period, and amid the alleged growing drug-related violence in Mendocino, which has been infamously dubbed the Emerald Triangle. Still, Joe and Will's frustration is inevitable, given they tried so hard to play by the rules. With the original plan to produce around five to six pounds of medicinal grade cannabis per plant, Will estimated the losses at over six million USD. Are these guys supposed to be sheriffs or are these guys supposed to be gangsters? You want to play gangsters with Big Bank? Let's go, you know? Big Bank? Like, you guys are small town dudes. Like, you're going to hate on us? Like, we're trying to do everything above, overboard. We're trying to fucking empower the community. We're trying to make money for everybody. We're investing millions of dollars, structuring around legally, creating jobs, creating wealth in the area. And you're gonna come fuck with us for what? Just because you think these with tribes the poor, are gonna make more money? Most of the, the poorest people. With the poorest people, you know? Not that shit is infuriating. In addition to interfering so heavily with what was a legitimate operation, there were also some pretty, shall we say, inflated assumptions about their identities. Like a quick, like, yeah, they were saying it was some like shitty local publication that the sheriff or some of the sheriffs gave him comments. It was like, yeah, well, the one I read it was like, oh, Chairman San Diego and his Asian mafia, or somebody put that comment on there. Yeah, yeah, I was like, damn, Will's Asian mafia is crazy, dude. Now, there were a few other comments that would elicit some very justified eye rolls, but let's just conclude by saying that despite the myriad setbacks, Joe and Will see the bigger picture. 
Their legal battle is far from over. But even when the dust settles and the rush of what's been called the Green Rush has passed, they'll be part of history in the making. It's not only a watershed moment for the evolving legal American cannabis industry, but also for other tribes too. While casinos certainly enjoyed its time as the poster child for reservation economies, for tribes hoping to develop an industry on their reservations, cannabis marks the beginning of a new chapter. It's one where natives have a very good shot at exerting the self-sufficiency that naysayers from President Jackson to grizzled racists born much later have always accused them of lacking. And most importantly, it's one where the next generation of entrepreneurial natives like Joe and Hunter can pick up that torch and lead both native and non-native alike. Why? Let's just say the next step for Joe and Will is to secure a gentleman's agreement with the powers that be. This is more formally known as a Memorandum of Understanding, or MOU for short. Once they get that to continue their legal grow up, others can follow suit. I think they call that sharing the wealth. thing is too is like if we do get an MOU with him and we work this out, it's not just Hoplin that benefits from it. It's every single tribe that wants to yeah. do it gets in the cannabis space. All the tribes of Mendo are gonna benefit from it directly because they're just gonna take the MOU that they have with Hoplin and they're gonna, you know, cookie cutter it to every other tribe. But it doesn't matter because whatever you get, whatever you get, I get tribe Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing, like, with me, you know what I mean? Like, I know, like, from my tribe, you know, we're 100% all in. My only, you know, reason for bringing Hunter into it is, is just, you know, it's an opportunity for him, and I'm not a hater, you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, I see it as, as, you know, another tribe to be killing it, too. Um, and instead of keeping, you know, something like this to myself, I, I just, I, I really believe in, like, synergy, you know what I mean, between people and between, you know what I mean, the universe, between everything, and so... Like, the more positive, you know, energy I can put into that, the more, you know, lives I can touch, the more people I can bless with that, the better, you know what I mean? The more it comes back to me.